Hi, welcome back. This is The Herd Mind. Um, and this is our second episode on the MCU. Uh, we, we've done one episode on phase one of the Marvel Universe, which is Iron Man to the Avengers, and this is the second, um, the second piece of their universe, I guess. Uh, and it starts in 2013 with the third Iron Man film, um, which is an interesting one because like, uh, like Captain America before it, this one does have an established director directing it, which is Shane Black. Um, he's maybe the most well-known name uh, to direct one of these films before um, making one, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, Iron Man, Iron Man 3 is a bit of a weird one in that um, I did enjoy it a lot. Um, but it doesn't really stick in my mind as being one that I think like, oh my god, yeah, that was really good. Um, so it's sort of, I don't know, is it is it a bit more average than some of the other ones? I don't know. But um, it is good. I did like it a lot. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoy Iron Man 3, but I see what you mean. It, um, it doesn't quite stand up to the same esteem as maybe a lot of the films from Phase 1 do. It's not, it doesn't like have the same failings or anywhere near the same failings as Iron Man 2 but it doesn't have quite the same success as Iron Man 1 exactly yeah and yeah I, I see what you mean it does sort of fade into the background a bit when you look at the MCU as a whole that might be a theme going through phase 2 is that these are the films that sort of fall into the background they're not bad necessarily but they're the, they're the forgettable ones they're all um, they're not uh, origin stories, they're not trilogy cappers, they're just sort of average MCU films following the current MCU template. Like, the template doesn't really change in uh, Phase 2, except for one very obvious example that we'll get to in a minute. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I feel like Iron Man 3 is just very solid. I, I People who have seen other Shane Black movies seem to like this one a lot more. Um, because it's it's very Shane Blacky apparently, but having only seen this one, I can't really speak to that. Yeah, can I can I just ask what else Shane Black has done? Um, he did the I'm Nice sure. Guys, did he? Did he do the Nice Guys? Um, Is that him? Yes, I think so. Which I have actually seen. Yeah, that I, was pre Iron Man three though. I, I did actually really yeah. enjoy, and it was it's very very funny actually. Um, I don't think it enhanced yeah. my enjoyment of Iron Man three anymore, but um, Me. I did I really like the Nice Guys actually. I would recommend it. One of the ones a lot of people talk about pre Iron Man. Is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is Robert Downey Jr. as well, right? Which is actually, yeah, the film that sort of started to make people talking about Robert Downey Jr. again because it was sort of the first film he'd headlined in quite a long time. Um. So yeah, but there's other films as well, like The Long Kiss Goodnight that has um Sam Jackson in uh, and Gina Davis. I I have seen that one, uh, although I think it, I might have only seen the second half of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I might cut this if I'm wrong, but wasn't he more of a writer before? Yes, yeah, he only wrote The Long Kiss Goodnight. Oh, JJ, you have seen a Shane Black film. Yeah, yeah. He did yeah. the, uh, he wrote The Last Boy Scout. Oh yeah. Squirrel love, baby. <laughs> that film's weird. But I think one of the things that Iron Man 3 does do is it, it doesn't forget the consequences of the earlier ones, like, uh... Tony has to deal with, I, I guess, is it PTSD? I guess it is. It's yeah, some sort of anxiety from PTSD, isn't it? Um, but he yeah. he has to deal with that because, let's face it, the uh, the events of the Avengers are gonna affect you. 
<laughs> they're going to have a pretty big effect if you have to go through that. And um, it's something that comic books and the idea of comic books have is this idea of like treating things lightly, which uh, yeah. Iron Man Three doesn't do. It does deal with it in the in a just something really serious happened to this guy, and he's having to having to really deal with it in a serious way. And so I think um, it has a real success there. I think what's quite interesting about that on the um, the flip side is that actually one of the reasons we've talked about earlier it's been sort of the, the more forgettable of the MCU films is almost that because although it does, the actions of the previous films do have consequences in Iron Man 3, it almost feels like the actions of Iron Man 3 don't have consequences in the future of the MCU. So, particularly at the end, considering he, he destroys all his all his suits <clears throat> and he has the shrapnel removed from his heart, and and as we say, yeah, he's got this recurring um, you know PTSD as well. None of those are really ever mentioned again. It break. It, I mean, it breaks up his relationship with Pepper. Pepper leaves him because he immediately starts building suits yeah. again after he said he wouldn't. Um, yeah, but I mean, they but... they've fixed that up now. But yeah, it is just it, it, it is odd that, as you say, it's a film that is about consequences and yet it's it doesn't actually seem to have any lasting ones on the on the mcu <laughs> yeah and Pe- pepper might have superpowers after this like she kind of has the extremis virus but but doesn't really after this and what's i think quite interesting about it as well is that it is the generally seen as being the most um you know divisive of the mcu films and a lot of that comes down to uh the mandarin reveal as yeah. well, that some people thought was a work of genius, and others thought it was disrespectful to, um, you know, co- the comic book. Uh, to a slightly naff comic book villain. Yeah. <laughs> which which side do we fall down on on this? By the way, everyone. I think I thought the villain in this was really strong, actually. I thought it was. I thought it was genius. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. But it is quite interesting. That this is despite the liberties they've taken with comic book the the um you know comic books in the past uh, in adapting them for movies and things like that they've they've never you know hewn that closely to the actual comic books themselves it's interesting that this is the only time there's really been any sort of blowback on that yeah it's a bit strange actually and and i mean the mandarin is in this film because killian when he uh tears his top off and has massive dragon tattoos going on he's very clearly the mandarin he's the guy who's been running everything from the beginning yeah um the fact that it the fact that it wasn't the guy in the trailers who turned out (laughs) trevor slattery's amazing ben kingsley's so good but uh, the fact that it wasn't him doesn't change the fact that he still fights the mandarin in this film yeah Um, yeah and I, i like that uh when he does fight him, this is the first time the bad guy hasn't also been in a big stompy robot suit. The bad guy yes, yeah. has fire powers and can burn through your big stompy robot suit. And actually, like, it's a way more interesting fight. Um, and yeah. and it's really good because of all the different suits flying around as well that you can jump between. Um, I mean, it is it is interesting. Like This one has the sort of thematic Tony is Iron Man. Iron Man isn't... You, you couldn't put anyone in the suit and have them be Iron Man. Like... Tony Stark is Iron Man, and he can be in any suit, and he can be out of the suit, and he's still... I, I mean, it, it sort of makes sense, except that then in the next film, he immediately builds more suits again. Um, yeah. Which, like you're saying, sort of undoes it. 
but you're right it's 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 good but it's not one i one i stick on it's not one i turn to yeah i was just gonna say it is the most um disposable you watch it and you enjoy it but then you <laughs> yeah sort of uh forget about it afterwards after you leave you don't yeah there's no, there's it's, no it's not one you sort of keep direction. coming back to in your in your mind it's still a very strong um addition to the to the universe yeah. but yeah well, I think if the Iron Man films were independent of the MCU, if they were old, older superhero films that weren't tied into this continuity, I think like it's a very strong trilogy, and I think this mm. is a very, very good trilogy capper because it ends the arc. Like the first film ended with him admitting he was Iron Man, and this one ends with him realizing he is Iron Man, and that Iron Man isn't the armor, and that's not what defines him and stuff. That's very good, but like then it because it's tied into the MCU, it it doesn't actually serve the purpose of capping a trilogy. It's just another film in the mix, and it yeah. sort of loses something through that, I think. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, speaking of films we, we don't feel inclined to put on and watch, the next one is Thor 2. Uh, everyone's favourite, right? Boo. Everyone's favourite MCU film. No? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, Thor 2 is really. the only time I've been disappointed yeah. uh, with an MCU yeah. film. There are some that I, you know, I've seen them and I've gone, oh, it was good, but it wasn't, say, as good as this one. Like Iron Man 2 I enjoyed, yeah. but came out saying, yeah, it wasn't as good as Iron Man. Thor The Dark World, I came out thinking, <laughs> let's be honest, that was kind of pants. Um <laughs> And that's the only time that's happened, and it is a real shame because I, and especially because I love the first Thor film so much, and I think that's possibly one of the reasons why my opinion of Thor two is so poor. It's because it's it's yeah. such a come down in my my books. Um, yeah. It, yeah. So, and I mean, there are there are many issues with it that I could probably go on about for a long time, but I'm sure other people want to have a have a say about it as well. Yeah, I actually missed Thor 2 at the cinema. It, apart from The Incredible Hulk, it's the only one I haven't seen at the cinema. Um, I was possibly slightly biased because I'd heard David's sort of opinion of it before I saw it, which probably doesn't help. But um, no, I would agree. I think it's it's lacking in a lot of areas. Um, I, it just You could really tell that it had had quite a bit of interference and like rewrites and... Um, it, it, there was just a lot of stuff didn't really make any sense and the characters that kind of w weren't really padded out and yeah it's it's not great i'm just disappointed to learn you never saw chris hemsworth sponge bathing himself on the big screen because uh that's a moment <laughs> <laughs> um, actually very quickly because there isn't really anywhere else to slot this in um we were talking about black widow being little more than eye candy in Iron Man 2 earlier. Like, it's worth saying the MCU is very good at uh, displaying male bodies. Like, mm. there's a lot of beefcake in these films, and it's... Uh, it's, um... Weirdly... Oh, what's, what's, what am I looking for here? It's, uh... It's an equal opportunities <laughs> uh, sort of business. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And I've, I've always sort of appreciated that. But, but back to why the Dark World is terrible. Jonathan, your turn to um, beat this one up. Well, I had quite an experience with this because um, I saw it at the cinema with my friends and they'd not seen the first one. So I brought them around to my house and we watched the first one on our TV and then immediately after we went to the cinema to watch Thor 2. 
And they came out of it like, oh, that's much better than the first one. And I was sat there no. like, wait, really? What? Oh, okay. So, I, I don't know if it was just because um, of what they appreciate from a film, what they want from a film, or maybe it was just the freshness of both of them in their minds, uh, like, warped their view. But I was... It, I had completely a different different outlook from them coming out of the cinema. Mm. And I, I just mm. thought I was... That was interesting. Um, yeah, because they said it was it was much better. I don't know if they just uh, preferred the, I don't know, the action, the the kind of more sci-fi element to it. I God knows, but I just I didn't mm. I did not appreciate it at all. There is there is something there in uh, the way they this one feels like a reaction to the first film in a way a lot of the marvel films don't the worst marvel films are the ones where they've reacted to stuff that's happened before incredible hulk is a reaction to hulk uh angley's hulk being like a slow thoughtful film instead of an action movie so that's and iron man 2 is a reaction to the incredible hulk doing badly and a reaction to how people liked iron man and what they liked in iron man this one feels like a reaction to people not being fond of the comedy in thor um, mm. and not liking the over-the-top fantasy. So instead they hired... Is it Brian Taylor? Is that right? Alan Taylor. Alan Taylor. Brian Taylor might be a musician. Um, but Brian, yeah. Brian, they <laughs> In hired... fact, he's, he's two members of Queen mixed together, isn't he? <laughs> uh, yes. He's a director from Game of Thrones. So when you hire a director from Game of Thrones, you're going for a very specific type of fantasy. So I think Marvel themselves were going, oh, we want our Thor to be darker and more gritty and realistic which are all buzzwords we now associate with dc of course um yes. and not positively mm. but it, it yeah um this one feels like it's not they're not just taking this character they've established in the world they've established and making a good story there they're trying to change them in ways that react to how it was previously seen and i, I don't think it works very well i still like it more than i think any of you do yeah i just think it's I, I think it's all right. It's an all right film. Um, yeah, it's interesting that it's, of all the Marvel films, it's the one that has the most sort of behind-the-scenes stories attached to it. Like It's yeah. the one where there were stories about it coming out of, you know, reshoots and um, studio interference and that kind of thing. And it's the one film where you can tell that's happened. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the the decision, as much as I love... Um, Loki and Tom Hiddleston the decision to insert him unnecessarily into the majority of the film really made it suffer I think and you know it made it made uh, Chris e um, Eccleston's Malaketh suffer as a villain because his screen time's cut down in order to give um, uh, Loki more you can you can feel some of the cuts as well you can tell yeah. that, like the scene where he got his face burnt off was definitely not how it is in the because that that scene just like happens like it flies by and i'm sure it's meant to be a bigger moment than that thor's mum dies for god's sake it just feels yeah yeah it, it, it yeah it you can you can tell there's stuff missing and changed yeah um, loki himself suffers i think as well because in thor as i said earlier every decision he makes makes sense his downfall makes perfect sense in this film like nothing he does makes sense he's completely all over the place he, he's not the intelligent calculating person that we've seen before he's sort of 
seems to keep changing his mind and I don't really know what he's doing and I don't think the writers knew what he was doing. They just wanted to put him in their film because he was popular. It's he, he suffers, I think, from that because he's a lot less... Because he, he's, he is their best villain in Thor 1 and then in this film kind of dampens that down a little bit. Yeah, and in doing so, it means the film has no decent villain. Yeah, which is a shame because he's, he's played by one of my favourite actors. So. I love Christopher Eccleston. I really love him. So, yeah, he's when very... he was cast, I was I was thrilled. Which, again, I think is another reason. There's, there's a whole list of pylons, which is why this um, this film's the bottom he's, of my list. And that's possibly another one. He's done a complete one. disservice by this film. I think. But it's interesting because, yeah. Matthew, you mentioned the line earlier when we were talking about Thor. As in, you know, when they're... Um, you know they don't not as not wanting to lean too heavily into the mystic of yes. it. Where um, yeah. he says, you know, you, your ancestors called it magic, you call it science. I come from a place where they're one and the same. Yeah. And I, 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 I actually really love that line because it hinted at a world that I was really excited to see, like a one yeah. where magic and science are, you know, in this, in you know, completely the same, and you can't tell which is which, and it is just the impossible is the possible because that's the kind of world it is. Um, and when they said, because they initially said, you know, Thor two was going to be almost a reverse of Thor, because Thor was a fish out of water story for Thor. Yeah. The Dark World was going to be a fish out of water story for Jane, and I was really excited to see more of Asgard, this world where there's you know science and magic blur together, and and they can do the impossible because it's possible where they're from. And you just didn't get that at all. I mean, for for some reason they seem to interpret that line as, oh yeah, it's just any other, you know, it's just just a generic sci-fi world. Yeah, they've got spaceships, they've got blasters, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that wasn't what I'd taken from that line. So again, I think no, no, it was. And that, I think, leans towards, again, you saying them trying to make it Asgard and that world a little bit more dark and gritty. They're taking away sort of the majesticness that Kenneth Branagh had inje- injected into the film. You know, that kind, that really overblown uh, pomp and all that kind of stuff, which I adored. And they've, they've you know, made it... They've, yeah, sharpen the edges, try to make it a little bit darker, um, and it's just ended up making it more more generic. Um, and again, that's a real shame because it was one of the things I was actually looking forward to this the most about uh, the Dark World, that actual exploration of Asgard from the eyes of a of a human. Because you know, to to Thor and and Loki and all the people we see in Asgard in the first film, it's just normal. Standard, so to actually yeah. see, you know, someone would be amazed at all this stuff. I was really looking forward to. But yeah, we don't get it. In fact, um, that isn't really in the film at all. Yeah, no, there, the, the... the Jane stuff changed a lot, didn't it? Because there was a different director originally. Was it Patty Jenkins? I think it was Patty Jenkins, yeah. Who went on to oh, direct Wonder Woman. Um, yeah, no, she was the original director um, and it was going to be a much more Jane-heavy story. Um, and I think yeah, she... Jane has done a, very, a complete disservice in this film. Yeah, I think, she, I think Patty Jenkins was hired... I might be getting this wrong. I think Patty Jenkins was hired not at the request, but like at the recommendation of um, Natalie Portman. And then that fell through and they decided they wanted to go in this darker direction, which they sort of do with all of Phase 2. And um, the Jane stuff changed dramatically. And I think Natalie Portman was a lot less interested in the film from that point. Because she she both gets sidelined and I think sidelined herself a bit. Like the other human characters do okay. I like the Selvig stuff and the Darcy stuff. Um, I'm not this. Darcy's biggest fan. I won't lie to you. I just feel like she's got she's this very 
ooh, look at me, I'm sarcastic and kooky, and I just, it, just, it, it just didn't work for me. <laughs> I, I just want to end this one on, because we've been down on this because it's not very good, but I, I want to end it just saying, I do think there's stuff to like in this. I really like the final battle. The stuff with the portals and jumping from world to world as they fight is really cool, and the way like the hammer gets stuck on one side of the portal as it closes, and so it zooms off into space, and then has to come back when they reappear on Earth. Like, I really like how clever that fight is. I just wish it was against someone who had anything going on at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the next film, to continue the Phase 2 thing where the Marvel Universe just gets darker and every film tries to out-gritty the previous one, is Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, which um, was absolutely loved on release, and I didn't get it, and I still kind of don't. Um, this this is the first first Captain America film in the modern world. After the last one was a was a flashback, um, and they try to make it about modern real world uh, like politics and warfare and stuff. And I I just I never really got on with it, and I I don't really like some of the directions they take some of the other characters in as well. Uh, yeah. And, and I know a lot of the things I don't like are things other people do like, and I just find that strange. Like, people like the, the kinetic, Bourne-style action, and I, I don't. And then the sort of, the camera work and the, the world is made very, like, I mean, people, it's going for realism, but what that actually means in effect is grey. Like, everything's very grey, and I just, I just do not like this one very much, really. It's interesting. Leading into your um, point about Grey, yeah. Um, one of the um, my issues with this film is how black and white it is in terms of uh, the morality of the characters. So, you know, oh, nice yeah. little nice little segue there. <laughs> I, I would agree with that comment. That's my main issue with the film as well. But no, I I sort of the same when it was came out. Everyone told me it was amazing. I was gonna love it. Oh, I put the other cap in the dust. And all this kind of stuff, and then yeah, went to see it, and yeah, didn't feel any of those those things with it. You know, is there's no denying it's a, it's a good film, and it certainly set a template. Again, you know, we've said that a lot about quite a few of the films, but it, it does yeah. certainly set a template about, um, particularly in the direction they took Captain America, and that the sort of the shield side of the of the MCU. Mm. Um, but yeah. In my mind, it didn't deserve the the praise that it that it did receive. No, I I agree. I think the the, the black and whiteness of it is very odd and doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. Um, because when you you know when you put it together with the other things, it's just people doing their jobs, and that's kind of the whole point. That actually, not all of Hydra is evil because they're just following orders, but then they are all evil, and it doesn't make any sense. And not all of Shield, you mean? But um. Also, in this film, we are introduced to a new character again, uh, Black <laughs> Black Widow version three. Because once again, she's a totally different person. She just the Marvel team just really struggled to write her consistently because she's really, really different again. Um, but yeah, so uh, and I yeah again that kind of didn't help with the enjoyment of the film because she was just very inconsistent again. But um, yeah. in this film, it's the first film that I find, like what you were saying before about the, um, the as you called it, kinetic action sequences. 
it's the first film film that feels I don't know what the word is um, either generic or derivative because like th- the other ones like the Iron Man films or Thor or um, Captain America the Avengers like it feels like they're like making their own format they're forging their own feeling to the films the, f- the films have their own very unique uh like sense to them like thor is well the first one anyway the second one it completely changes for the second one the the uh the ethos of the film but um like it feels like they're just making their own um space in fact but like it feels like uh captain america 2 is is cashing in on things that have already been done things we've already seen and you know just generic action film or oh, it's film about spies so you know it's got to be it has to act this way instead of it's film about these characters and in this world let's write that film it it feels like um it's derivative of stuff we've already seen does that make sense yeah yeah it does um but i i think we're all we all sort of agree on this one i i've got to say i found it's weird actually going back and watching it now because I found at the time I was what annoyed me was what you said that the morality is so black and white that Cap Cap's team is ordered to attack him uh, and everyone's told that he is uh, now working against them and so so Cap's team then attack him in an elevator and then later on he announces to the whole of um, the whole of Shield that that team are definitely Hydra. And the only way he knows this is because they attacked him, but those were their orders. That's how orders work. Like, you, they were told to do that, so they did that. Like, if the head of the organisation is bad, the rest of the organisation doesn't need to be. That's the danger of power structures. Exactly. It's like, the film missed out on all of that. Although, the thing is, if you watch it now, now it feels like in the real world, no, actually, all the bad people are just genuinely white supremacists and trying to do bad things openly. So I don't know. Maybe now it actually works a bit better. But um, I know we said we weren't going to get hung up on plot, and I am trying not to, but Hydra, they've infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. to the highest levels, right? Yeah. They've really got in there. Sitwell's Hydra agent, all these high-ups are Hydra agents. And their final plan to set off this evil weapon they've got, their solution is to send in some Hydra agents to point a load of guns at the IT guys and get them to press a big red button. Why did they not have a Hydra agent in the IT room? Like, why are they not infiltrated there? It... It doesn't make because nobody cares sense. about the nerds, Amy. There's a lot. There's a lot about this film that makes absolutely no sense, and I just really struggle to forget that. And I, it just the plot yeah. is just broken. Mm. Especially seen as one of the reasons why it was sort of so critically lauded is because people were saying it was a really intelligent movie. You know, like one of them old school spy films and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And you actually pause to think about it. And you go, it really ain't that smart. Yeah, it's like, yeah. this is the dumbest conspiracy there's ever been. Yeah. The conspiracy isn't, we will use existing command structures to do terrible things, which is how general conspiracies work. It's, a bunch of us are evil, and the evil ones among us will be evil. There you go! Yeah. Conspiracy. Yeah. It's, I, I've got to say, the, the best thing to come out of this film was Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season one, which halfway mm. round turns around and reveals that one of its characters has been Hydra the whole time, and just handles all of this stuff much better. The, the, yeah. the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is as 
because we said this film, film was too black and white, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is so grey. It really, really deals with the greyness of it all. And yeah, nobody trusts actually, anyone. Not everybody's completely evil. They were just told that that was the right thing to do and it just it handles the, the concept so much better. Yeah, can we can we talk about Sitwell? Because he's been in the other films. He's you know the, the bald guy. He's a friend of Coulson's, and Coulson and Fury trust him implicitly. He's he's a good guy, but then uh, oh oh, plot twist! Just for the sake of there being a plot twist, he's Hydra. Whoa! And then um, because he's Hydra, you know he's suddenly disposable, and he gets chucked out of a window, and you're supposed to not care about him anymore. And it's just that that black and white morality is just such. Uh, twisted and twisted way of thinking. It's such a shame. And as well, there's the um, we see the uh, the judge from Iron Man Two, who in Iron Man Two just has a vendetta against Tony Stark. He just doesn't like him, and so he's a bit rude to him. That's all it is. But obviously, the writers were like, Haha, "That guy was a douchebag. Let's make him evil." But the weird thing is, is that if you actually listen to the points he's making in Iron Man 2, he's sort of got a point. Tony Stark really shouldn't be in charge of that. But yeah, but the way it's then twisted into, I was only saying that because he's evil. It is a yeah. kind of... But yeah, but he wasn't really because yeah. Tony yeah. Stark is an he's, asshole who shouldn't be in charge of the most powerful weapon in the universe. Also, we should, it's notable of being the film that brought in the Russo brothers. Who yes, have obviously gone on to to shape a lot of the um, the MCU? So just give them a quick uh, quick shout out here because we'll probably be talking about them uh, them later on. Yeah, they'll yes. be more important down the line. Um, so from from this, which is a um, a Marvel film that left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth, actually. Um, the later later the same year, um, like comes I think the biggest shake up in the Marvel universe since the first Avengers. Um, which is Guardians of the Galaxy, which just opens opens the world up and goes, this one doesn't have any of the same characters you know. It isn't set in the same era. Well, I mean, it's set a few years different, I think. It, it, the, the timeline in Guardians is a bit weird to follow, but um, and, it, and it's set out in space, and then nothing happens on Earth, and half the characters are... In fact, most of the characters are weird aliens, and it's just a completely different type of film. This is... Um, Star Warsian space fantasy, and it's it's just wonderful, and it and it feels so fresh compared to um, what was what was starting to uh, the the sequels were starting to be less interesting, I think, um, and this one this one's just so new um, and is exactly what we needed. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that despite knowing so much about the Marvel comic universe, they were in fact a group of characters I knew nothing about. I'd never even heard of them. You know, that uh, it was quite interesting to go into a film completely unaware of what to what to expect with every other character. We've had expectations based on what we know yeah. from from reading the comics or watching the um, you know, the old cartoons. Um, but yeah, this was uh, an absolute, you know, sort of almost blank slate for me. I had no idea what to what to expect. Um and it it just it delivered on it on every uh, every point. Um, yeah, no, I really really liked Guardians of the Galaxy. I knew nothing about them, never heard of them, like you. Um, but I really enjoyed it. The film was a very different tonally to a lot of the others. Um, uh, 
but it still felt very much like a Marvel film, um, even though it was so different. Um, and it's just, it's very fun. <laughs> it's, um, and I know we said Thor was um, basically a flat comedy and Thor is very fun, but um, I think this one's just funner. I don't know. It's, it just feels a lot more lighthearted and a lot uh, less serious than all the others. I don't know yeah. about you, but this is this is the one I've probably watched the most. This is the one where if I feel like watching a film that will make me happy, this is the one I'll put on. Um, yeah. mm. And I, that's not even true of the Avengers, which I think which is still my favourite. Like this is this is the one I just, I it's such a good time. But the thing with this one as well, because it has the um, because it's not set on Earth, because it has the least consequence uh on the rest of the universe um well at this point currently anyway in 2014 mm -hmm. it had the least uh stake in um all the crap going on on earth it had the fewest ties to it um it was allowed to just do whatever it wanted and i think it really benefited from that it, you know, there are a couple of things that had to had to do, or a couple of plot beats that had to do. It had to introduce a new Infinity Stone. It had to um, explore Thanos, the Puppet Master, a bit more, just a tiny bit more. Yeah. And but mm. apart from that, it could do whatever. But um, I think Guardians of the Galaxy was probably quite a big risk um, for them, because obviously we know they've taken risks. They're the Marvel films. They're going to make money no matter what they make. But um, even so, I think, you know, it's a film with a talking raccoon and a big tree person and it's come, nobody's ever heard of these characters. Um, and I think it was um, quite a big risk for them to take. Um, and I just think that's something that's really interesting about Marvel is that even, even now, even though they're very well established as a successful film franchise, they are still taking these risks. It's not. It's not just um, the the story and the characters that are um, a risk and unusual as well. The the whole feel of this film is um, very different. Like stylistically, it's got the uh, jukebox musical um, soundtrack, yes. which is incredible and has has um, become so important to like that series. The uh, what's it called? The awesome mix. Um, yeah. But even yeah. things things like that. That's a that's a big um unusual risk to take in your because they're, they're 10 films in now this is uh they've got an established house style even if it mixes things up a little like this is so different and so out there um i yeah it, but but like jonathan said in one way it's a massive risk and in another way because it was isolated off in space if it had gone horribly wrong if this film had been a disaster and bombed like it wouldn't have affected very much they could have just uh, like like they did with Hulk, <laughs> yeah, like brushed it under the table and been well. That that was a thing we tried. Uh, on to the next thing. Um, so they've I been think, very savvy. Um, yeah, you said with the the soundtrack was a big risk, but I think they knew it was going to pay off after the first trailer. You know the mm. the Uga Chaka, Uga Chaka, yes, Uga, yeah, Chaka, and everyone was like, "What is this? This is amazing." I'm going to see it. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a trailer that ends with everyone yawning and looking bored. It's such a such a great thing. Yeah, obviously one of the you know we've talked about the risks they took with this film, both with the characters and the choices they made in the film. But obviously the choice in director was quite a big risk as well. But yeah, obviously James Gunn was a name we were aware of, and we'd actually come sort of come into contact with him through 
our love for uh, Firefly, I think, really, because obviously the first film yeah. James Gunn directed was Slither, uh, which had Nathan Fillion in, and obviously, um, you know, as big um, Whedon and Firefly fans, we sort of wanted to track down everything that the uh, the cast from that had been doing. Uh, and that led us on to, to Slither, which I think came out reasonably close to sort of Serenity. And then, <laughs> through some weird, we discovered that he'd actually written um, both the Scooby-Doo live-action films as well. Those films are so good, and I'm, I'm not even joking, they're amazing. The second one is good. I don't know if the first one is. I, I, I genuinely, unironically yeah. love those films. <laughs> uh, but yeah, as well as that, he went on to direct uh, Super as well which is a very dark comedy about a man who decides to become a superhero who has no powers yeah. and his fights crime by hitting people in the fen- face with a with a wrench. Uh, and it was kind <laughs> yeah. of overshadowed at the time by Kick-Ass because those both films about people um you know who don't have superpowers trying to be superheroes. Um so yeah, it didn't actually get as much sort of coverage as it maybe should have because it is a very good film um and again you know had nathan fillion in so we had to go and watch it but yeah so we were aware of james gunn as a director and it was his filmography despite writing the two scooby-doo films was one that did not seem to mesh with um marvel at all well it's another directorial gamble which seems to be their thing at this point yeah uh but it was it's possibly one of the the biggest payoffs they've had, I think, because James Gunn has become such an inter- integral part of, the, and the, the tone he established with the Guardian films becomes such an integral part of the MCU. So I think it is possibly their biggest biggest payoff in in taking that um, that risk and bringing bringing him in because it, um, I think there were a lot of raised eyebrows at the time uh, from people that had never heard of him and from people that had heard of him and uh, had watched Slither. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um so, you, you say you say this uh um lends a lot to the MCU and it it owes it a lot going forwards. I think I think that you can't overstate that really because if if phase 2 is uh grayer, more down to earth, like slightly more serious dramas, if that's what phase 2's whole aesthetic is, then Phase three is owes everything it is to Guardians of the Galaxy. Phase three is the colourful, uh, over the top space, um, yeah, comic comic book madness era of Marvel, and and I think that starts here. Um, I yeah, I really love this one. Yeah, I, yeah. I do as well. It's just it's yeah. so fun. <laughs> it is just a really it is a an absolute thrill ride. I think of a film. Yeah. Have we poured enough love on this one, do we think? Yeah. <laughs> well, we've not even mentioned the cast yet. Oh, God. <laughs> um, is it enough just to say, yeah, they're fantastic. Um, <laughs> everyone's yeah. amazing, up to and including Vinny D. <laughs> yeah, but it's possibly, again, this one is is possibly one of the riskiest casts they've put together. Zoe Saldana sort of almost being the only mainstream yeah. name in there. Well, the other two mainstream names are Bradley Cooper and... Um, Vin Diesel. Uh, Vin Diesel and yeah, they're they're voicing a <laughs> raccoon in a tree. So, <laughs> but they're they're not even voicing them as themselves. Like Rocket, I forget Rocket Raccoon is Bradley Cooper mm. because he he's doing a Doesn't voice. He's doing it like so well. Yeah, that's just one hundred percent Rocket Raccoon to me. I don't even hear voice a voice actor there. It's great. Um, yeah, and of and of course, um, 
uh, Chris Pratt was best known for being uh, the chubby one on Parks and Rec. It's crazy that these yeah. are... It's crazy that he became a like movie superstar, um, and it's crazy that this is how he did it. It's uh, yeah, and Dave Bautista yeah. is fantastic, and Dave uh, is amazing. Karen Gillan was um... yeah, Karen Gillan's very good. Uh, so yeah, that leaves Lee Pace, who is um, massively underserved as Ronan. I think he does he does what he can, but Ronan. The problem is that they've got to introduce six main characters, mm. and so there isn't really time to introduce a solid villain, so they're just like, he's a space racist, and he's going to blow everyone up. And that's, He's a religious zealot. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. quite interesting that, d- despite being one of the, the wackiest and zaniest um, and all the other words people throw at it, it is also one of the most unashamedly emotional, I think. Yeah, yeah. the payoff at the end is how they beat Ronan is based, it's a purely emotional moment, you know, because mm. for, for, it swings from comedy to the dance-off to then about, you know, emotional closure and, but yeah, and it is, and of course, you know, the opening scene is his, um, him watching his mother die, basically, so, um, and of course his yeah. relationship with Yondu, yeah, it is, um, despite being billed as this, you know, brightly coloured wacky film about a you know a crazy band of misfits getting up to all this uh, misadventure there is a real solid emotional core there to all the characters you know um rocket's very tr- uh, tragic in his backstory as is um as is drax so it is um yeah it's a, there's a real really strong emotional heart under underneath the all the primary colors so and i think that's one of the reasons why it works so well that's a really good point, actually. We are quite um, quite an emotional family when we're watching oh, films. Yeah. We're all known to burst into tears at random moments. Um, yeah. And, you know, constantly through Return of the King from start to finish. Uh, this is... I think I think this is the only Marvel film that makes me cry. Um, when, when Groot is saving everybody, um, that is the moment in the Marvel Universe that just destroys me. Um, yeah. And it's in this ridiculous, stupid space film. It's it's amazing. So that that is definitely enough um, of Guardians. Guardian love. Far, far too much Guardian love. Um, On to the Avengers two, which I, I think everyone went into with really high hopes uh, because the Avengers was so incredible, um, and this is Joss Whedon coming back again to do the same the same thing, hopefully. Um, and I think, I, th- I think it's fair to say it doesn't quite reach the heights of the Avengers, but it is, but it is still um, a really, really good um, film, and uh, it's just great to see them all back together like this. Yeah, um, I think I th- earlier I said that the Dark World is the only film I've come out where I've actually been disappointed. Yeah, uh, but I do think Age of Ultron is the closest time <laughs> other time I've been to that I, you know but it is also one of those films that every other time I watch it I enjoy it a little bit more um, which doesn't yeah. happen with the dark world but again I think it was you know the weight of expectation because the Avengers yeah. was so so good um, that yeah I, well, I wasn't you know I sort of left me feeling a little bit um, you know 
unfeeling when I left cinema. I didn't really have any sort of opinion on it. I was sort of like, well, that was a film I watched. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the more the more I have seen it, the more I I do take away from it, and the more I um, rate it as a movie yeah. now. So. I think they did a lot of things wrong in this film, but it still does function as a film, and it still does add a lot to the universe. Has a lot to offer, whereas the uh, the Dark World doesn't have can't have that boast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I mean, this is this is another one that's been chopped up a little in editing, isn't it? Um, it was yeah. Much. It was longer originally, and stuff's been uh, chopped and changed. Uh, particularly where Thor and um, his his parts are involved, and and that's why um, the sort of birth of Vision scene uh, feels a bit thrown together is because I imagine it sort of was. One of the biggest problems I have with this film, I know it, it's probably. As films go, not like as a film is probably not that big an issue, but it is just an issue I have. I think Ultron is isn't done properly because the thing is with Ultron, he is he's an AI. He's a living god in the modern age. Basically, he can be anywhere and everywhere. His brain is this one global network. He's but it treats it like. He is localized to one body, and has a load of drones that follow him. Yeah, he never is actually the threat he should be, because yeah, he should basically be able to shut down the world even without access to the nuclear codes. Yeah. Um, you know, he should be able to reach into everyone's electronics and turn it off. Um, yeah. And I that was sort of the film I was ex- expecting it to be. I thought. Um, you know, Age of Alt, even the title Age, Age of, of Ultron implied that um, you know he would actually have a you know almost a reign. You know, we I sort of almost yeah. envisioned a film where he'd he'd rise up and then it'd maybe have a time jump to six months later and everyone was living in a cave. Yeah, um, yeah. and Cap would have a massive hobo beard. I mean, we had to wait another phase to get that, but so we <laughs> quite often, yeah, jokingly call it um, Weekend at Ultrons rather than. Yeah, rather than Age of Ultron, because it did feel quite... It didn't have the impact that uh, I thought it potentially could, because he, he should be so powerful. Um, and as a, as, a, uh, as a villain... I mean, as a character, he's, he's fine. I, I really like the way he's written and the way James Spade is playing him. But as an actual villain, uh, he never reaches his potential. Yeah, the, um, the, the scene between Ultron and Vision at the end, by the lakeside... Um, suggests a better film than this is mm. like that that's yeah, the ending yeah. to a a much more philosophical and um interesting film about these two uh these two robots who have surpassed their creators but it, we don't we don't really get that film because ultron's doing this thing where he's uh, he's obsessed with tony he hates tony but he also idolizes tony because he's his creator essentially it's a um it's a daddy issues story really um (laughs) and but that's why he wants a human body is because he wants to be a real boy that's why there was so much pinocchio in the trailers but like that makes for an interesting character but i don't think it makes for an interesting threat because there's no reason he's going to be more dangerous when he gets his body than he was before Mm. 
they're trying to stop him getting the body, but like he's already dropping Sokovia from the sky, so does it really matter? I don't know. It, it's a bit confused sometimes. Yeah, because in the comics, um, the Vision is his creation, isn't it? Ultron's builds the Vision, yeah. I thought the Vision was dead Wonder Man. Well, he's that as well, but, you know, comics. Comics, man. Comics. <laughs> but yeah, um, in... Like, surely it would have worked better in the film as well if, you know, Ultron has daddy issues, so he wants to make uh, his I own I can create life creation. too! Yeah, and, like, give it not daddy issues. He's like, I'm gonna raise it right, and it's gonna be my I like, an idealized version of my ideals. Yeah, he's gonna be, he's gonna keep my reign supreme, and then he turns around and he's like, actually, Dad, I think you're a bit of a douche. And then that's when the resistance, like, uh, yeah, no, there were ways it could have been done. Yeah, but it's also interesting that one of the other issues I have with it is that he does have these issues around Tony. You know, he does resent Tony and all this, and he wants to be better than Tony. And when someone suggests that he's like Tony, he, uh, you know, he goes into a rage. And turns into Ultron from the comics. I wish he did that more, you know, where his cheeks go glowy and he actually looks yes, like... Yes, yeah. I wish it did that a little bit more. But anyway, carry on. But he's never... It never actually sets up a relationship between him and Tony that can then go go sour because basically the film... Cons- the uh, start of the film consists of Tony and Bruce trying to make Ultron work. They can't. They go off to have a wild party. Ultron turns on. Um, and interacts with Jarvis and from that conversation decides he's going to kill everybody and also has a weird unhealthy uh, obsession with Tony but it's never actually set up I mean there's even a bit in the film where um, Tony refers to him as his son I I think it's a fight in the boat isn't it but again that relationship isn't actually it it almost feels like it was a story for two movies Um, and Ultron was a character that needed a lot of setup to then be a successful villain, and unfortunately, all that setup um, has had to be removed from the film. I think, but uh, but you know, the the sort of implication that that setup has happened is all still in there, so it doesn't really work. We haven't mentioned the introduction of uh, the two new characters, Scarlet Witch and what's he called, Quicksilver, because mm. they they've got a hatred of Stark, and that's why they connect in the first place, isn't it? But their hatred of Stark seems more well founded. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. and so them teaming up with Ultron uh, like makes makes sense, but never really feels like it makes sense because Ultron's so obviously mad and evil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, there's a deleted scene, which I think um, would have improved. Uh, would have made a bit more sense uh, before they meet Ultron. It shows uh, Wanda and. Pietro, um, down in Sokovia's streets, like handing out blankets and stuff. Oh right. And I, I like it showed that they're not terrible people, and like they're humans too. They're looking out for fellow man, and um, they're they're just trying to be helpful, and that's why they signed up for the um the experiments because they they care and they wanted to help. They just think um you know Stark and stuff aren't doing the right things. A lot of what we've been saying about this film has been uh, character drama and character based. And I think that's 
the the film has a lot of problems and and i feel like the action isn't as strong as it was in the first avengers or at least it doesn't it doesn't build up in the same way the first avengers does it it's blows a lot of its spectacular scenes at the beginning where the avengers saved the big punch to the end and there is 20 minutes of furious glorious action um but what this film does do really well is uh character interaction and character drama stuff it's it um and that's that's joss whedon again like um balancing ensembles and their their like relationships to one another is what he's always done on tv and things but it's everything from like the party where they're trying to move steve's hammer and uh when they're hanging out at the not farm. steve's hammer not steve's hammer not steve's hammer steve doesn't have a hammer uh, when they're having, hanging out at the farm, um, uh, chopping wood, and all the Bruce and Natasha stuff, like all, all of the character stuff in this film is really strong. Yeah, um, and that—that's yeah. why—that's why, despite all the things we've just said, like I'm, I can't not love it. It's it's, it does so much for the characters, and um, this is. This is the film that finally nails down who Natasha is. I think. I mean, she, it's the same character she was in the Avengers, but from this point on, she's fairly consistent through the Russo brothers films as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And thank God for that because yeah. it was very <laughs> annoying having to meet her for the first time again every film. And uh, obviously, it's also uh, the film where um, Hawkeye finally gets some uh, much deserved. No. Love, yeah. Uh, that we mentioned fe- that farm. feels like penance for leaving him out last time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We went mentioned the farm, and again, it's um, yeah, just an opportunity to have a bit of a, a breather in the film and focus more on on the characters. Um, and it's quite surprising that in sort of the after the film came out, it came to light that that film was you know almost cut because Disney absolutely hated it. Yeah, and Joy, it was a, got rid of the farm. Yeah, real point of contention with Joss Whedon, um, and probably you know the resulted in him leaving the Marvel universe. But yeah. it, it's it's so odd that because it is a, a, a sequence within the film that works so well, it shows them all at their lowest. Um, but it also you know expands them as 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 characters and people. There's some some beautiful character moments. Um, between combinations you might not expect in uh, in in that that sequence and just the the scene where they're all you know having dinner and you know uh, Clint's doing the washing up and things like that and you know they they're just humanizing these people and showing them interact on a level where they're not out because the um the avengers showed them interacting as a as a unit really well and the way they all yeah. sort of bounce off each other in the in the heat of battle and things but ultron Shows how they just interact really well as as people, both in in the party and in the in the farm, um, and I think that was really needed. We said in the Avengers, Clint and um, Natasha's like relationship was really good. Um, we see more of this in this one because obviously she knows about his wife and she's like met them and stuff, and it just sort of reinforces that as well. Because I think sometimes in films, like these sort of like relationships, sometimes get a bit forgotten about, um, mm. and it's it, I just really liked that that one hadn't been. 
I, I love how she's obviously someone who visits and like hangs out with the kids and things, and it's not a side of her you'd expect to see. And I, I really yeah. like that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how and how Clint's wife is just so accepting that these are these are just his friends from work. He's got a weird job, but that's <laughs> fine, I suppose. And yeah, like, but but how it balances that with how worried she is about him, and but but she knows he needs to do it and why. And it's I I just think it's excellent. Ah, uh, yeah, and I I really liked her as a character as well. I just thought she was really good. Yeah. But seeing seeing Natasha at the farm and stuff, interacting with the kids and stuff, you can see Avengers uh, Black Widow doing that. You can't see Winter Soldier Black Widow doing that at all. That's very true. <laughs> and we talked about um, blowing the uh, the spectacle early on, um, but you know, special shout out to the to the um, Hulkbuster sequence, oh, I think, yes. which is um, is an absolute standout of that that film for me. I think it is. Um, and the um yeah just the way he scans the building to make sure there'll be no collateral damage in a massive middle finger up to uh to Zack Snyder is always going to be appreciated <laughs> yeah. i mean that is that's definitely on purpose isn't it that is oi dc do it like this um, yeah. it's, it's amazing yeah it's used for more than just spectacle more Look. than just a fight scene yeah it actually um yeah, again, I mean, we've said this a lot of times, but it is rooted in in character. You know, it's um, yeah. the effect it has on Bruce afterwards uh, is is you know deep set and is in fact still being felt in the in the MCU yeah. now. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's it has affected him deeply throughout throughout the you know the future films. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah, the way it keeps cutting back to Tony. Um, inside, you know, in the in the HUD, trying to talk him down, you know, obviously not wanting to hurt his friend, yeah. um, breaks it up and reminds you that this isn't just a just a spectacle. This is actually two friends having to having to fight. Yeah, and you know that's something they uh, they ran within uh, quite a lot in Civil War. But the um, yeah, the template of it of how to actually emotionally invest an action scene. Um, I think comes quite a lot from that that Hulkbuster sequence in Ultron. I I adore Tony and Bruce's uh, relationship. They just work really well together. Science Bros. Oh yes, that's that's what the internet calls them, isn't it? <laughs> oh no, really? I don't know. I don't know if that's still a thing, but it was a thing. Right. Um. And then finally, to wrap up phase two is uh. Uh, there's no way to say it other than a small film, uh, much smaller than the, the spectacle of Ultron and the things that came before it. But I mean, nice. It's it's Ant Man, and that wasn't meant to be a joke. But there's really no other way of saying it. Um, um I, I don't think we should dwell too hard on the um, Edgar Wright um, part of this story. The fact that this was originally. Um, meant to was being developed really early on in the mcu was it even before the mcu yeah it might have been certainly the early days yeah so edgar wright was working on that manuscript for years and the idea was that it wouldn't have been integrated into this universe they were building because they, they hadn't figured out how to build this universe yet it wasn't the mcu wasn't a thing at the time that script was being developed um, and as time's gone on, and and as we've seen through a lot of these, the the phase two is when Disney put their fingers in 
too far i think it, it this is yeah. the phase where the films start to suffer because uh the studios meddling and interfering maybe too much meddling's probably a strong word but you know what i mean they're um throwing their weight around a little more than they were in phase one and a little more than it feels like they have in phase three in phase three it feels like they've backed off a little um mm. and uh Edgar Wright was not up for that, and he they they asked him to do, change too much, and they wanted too much integration with what else was going on, and and he um, stepped away from the project. And everyone assumed it was going to be a disaster and a failure after that because they were still planning on working on it. It was still halfway through development, and they uh, brought in Peyton Reed to do it yeah. instead. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Um, and uh, I've got to say. It was a surprise how great this film was and how much fun I had with it. And not not just because of um, the Edgar Wright stuff, but just in general, I was not expecting a film about Ant-Man to um, be this good, really. Yeah, um, and I think Paul Rudd's a great choice as well, because again, he's a lot older um, than the normal Marvel superheroes we're used to seeing. I think he's one of the older actors. Um, but the it's quite interesting because the scenes with just Scott, you know, where he's trying to get a job and stuff, they just feel very much like a Paul Rudd film. Um, and that was really interesting because they kind of don't feel like a Marvel film. They just feel like you're watching a zany Paul Rudd film. Um, <laughs> and then it kind of turns into a superhero Marvel film. And it's, it, it's amazing how much that works, actually. Yeah. It is another one that feels um, very comedy. Uh, yeah. And, and... Yes, it's very funny. Yeah, this is this is in the um, Guardians and Thor one sort of. Uh, it's it's funny first, and then is a superhero film on top. So interestingly, one of the reasons I wasn't that interested in seeing um, Ant Man as well, you know, obviously I was always going to see it because it's an MCU film, and that's what we do <laughs> these days. But it was because the Ant Man they were focusing on was Scott Lang. Mm. Yeah, and I in the comics that I'd read, it had Ant Man had always been Hank Pym. Hank Pym was the Ant Man I had a knowledge of and a you know a, a reading relationship yeah. with. So, yeah, the fact that it was Scott Lang, who I knew nothing about, didn't really um, you know excite me that much. But yeah, certainly when after the second trailer came out, you know, I was I was completely sold. You know, because it's. Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter who's uh, shrinking down and riding ants, really, just as long as they look good doing it. But <laughs> Was it the Thomas the Tank Engine joke? Because that's what sold me. When the, yeah. you see the, the giant train bearing down yes, on him and he's yeah. screaming, and then it cuts to the table, and it's just a tiny little toy train that falls over, and it, does, yeah. it just clatters. Like, that, yeah, that absolutely sold me on, oh, this is, this is clever. This is really funny. Yeah. Uh, and the way they did have Hank Pym in, in the film as that older mentor I thought worked really well um, Yeah. also in the way that it hinted towards a period of the MCU that we hadn't seen, sort of those mm. you know, almost uh, those heroes that were obviously around in the in the 70s, you know, the prologue of the film showing Pym working for yeah. S.H.I.E.L.D., working for um, t- uh, Howard Stark and, and Peggy Carter, you know, Peggy that hinted Carter. towards a really interesting world that we've not we've not seen any of since, and that um, no. that's that's really quite exciting, I think. And uh, you know, they they don't even have to ever revisit it, but just the the knowledge that superheroes have almost been an established 
thing throughout this world. Iron Man wasn't the first. It didn't. It didn't start with him. It's been been a long established established thing. So yeah, no, I just thought that was really really interesting. The implications of it. But I think it's really it, it was really interesting to see like the older superhero sort of like passing on the the um what word am I looking for here? Legacy, possibly. Yeah, to to somebody younger and sort of I think that's because that's not something that we've actually seen before, and I think that was really interesting. That's something that may become important to the Marvel Universe later on as well. I mean, we're going to talk mm. at the end of next episode about um, mm. what what happens going forward from where we are now. But it, it feels as though this is maybe what they're going to have to do with some of the characters. Is maybe uh, Steve will have to pass on the shield to someone else or Tony will uh, give someone else the armor or someone else will develop some or something. Um there's there's lots of candidates in the comics, although I'm sure the films will suffer from the same problem as the comics, which is that quite often you go back to they go back to the original after uh, introducing these new versions of characters, just because yeah. people still love the classics. So I don't know, they're, they're, but it it it's interesting to see that this is one way they could go with it is to have Hank Pym um, pass pass on his powers and his suit to a new new generation. Um, this is this is another one where actually like the sort of human family stuff is uh, just as important. To... Yeah, the sort of the uh, the superhero work life balance is really highlighted in this film. I'm looking looking through the list here, and it's the first in phase two where the end of the film is not like facing down a world destroying threat. Iron Man three is mm. not quite as big as the others, but you've got. Um, the Dark Elves destroying the world, you've got S.H.I.E.L.D. taking, you've got Hydra taking over the world, you've got um, Ronan destroying Xandar, you've got Ultron destroying the world, and then you've got uh, Scott Lang saving his daughter. Like, that's all this comes down to at the end, is um a a fight in a child's bedroom to, like, keep her safe. And it's, it's, uh, (laughs) It's great. It feels really big in the moment, even though it's obviously the. Uh, I keep saying small. You know what I mean. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but yeah, I I really appreciated that about Ant Man that you can make these smaller scale films and still have them feel important and still feel as though they matter in this bigger whole. I I really appreciate that. Yeah, um, yeah. One thing I was going to say about. Ant Man that we've not already touched on is how well it handles the action sequences because it's quite a unique power that um, that Ant Man has, mm. uh, and the way that the film you know does that with all the the you know the changing sizes and um, you know quite a lot of what it does is um, our sight gags such as the Thomas tank engine moment and things like that. Um, but yeah, the way it, in, it, it integrates that power into the into the film, I think, is really, really well done. And also, the I think it's possibly the only film we've had since Iron Man that actually has sort of like a training montage of him getting a handle on his power. Uh, and I, I think that's that works really, really well. Um, yeah. You know, actually, you know, obviously, they, a lot of the comedy comes from that because, as we said, it's one of the most outright comedy films they've made. Yeah. Um but yeah, it is it is always good to have a have a have a training montage in there. <laughs> so <laughs> So um, you know, it goes back to yeah. the um the, the classic Spider Man days and things like that. 
uh, you know, the trials and tribulations to get the get everything right. But yeah, no, I think the way it, um, it handles his his power, which you know had the potential of looking pretty ridiculous, is yeah. um, is really well done. And you know, it's yeah. more than just used as a gimmick, really. The way you know moments that you have to shrink or or size up are actually thought about. You know, they're they're not just um, you know, oh, I can he can be small, so he can do this. They do actually. You know, there is actually a little bit of intelligence into how it's um, how it's used in the in the sequences. Talk, talking about the look of the power itself, it's, I think they did something really clever when they they did this. Um, and it wasn't actually something that I picked up on. It was something my dad mentioned. And I went, "Oh, of course, yeah." How how did I not notice that? But in the comics, in the Ant Man comics, when Ant Man resizes, it shows a big Ant-Man and a little Ant-Man and then it shows like five different shadow Ant-Men of different sizes between the two points Yeah. to show like in comic book form he is shrinking right now and in the in the film it mirrors this whenever he shrinks you see a few stages like faded out yeah it's not like a smooth transition yeah and it it's you can see like shadow like frames of him as he's shrinking, and it's to mirror the look of the comic books. And I thought that was, that was really clever. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that um, Ant-Man was the last film of Phase 2, although it feels a little out of place, because all, all the other phases have ended with a gigantic uh, Avengers film with everyone teaming up. This one, uh, this one sort of has Ant-Man on the end after Avengers 2 has already happened, but... Um, that's, that's where they've drawn the line, so that's where we'll end this one. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with um, Phase 3 uh, after we've all uh, recovered from this four-hour recording session. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, thanks very much for listening. Uh, you can follow us at HerdMind on Twitter. Um, see you later. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.